There are five key individuals that are going to be mentioned in our passage today. Pay attention to what God is getting ready to do through them. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Let me interject. Remember the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. But God is at work. Now, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit too. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah in the back seat. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that your spirit is moving out. You are at work always, and we praise you. Bless Tom as he teaches, and may we be changed in a way to make you known as well. And we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. My title this morning is Fanning, Quenching, and Catching the Flame. The flame that that refers to is the spreading flame of the Holy Spirit working through the church of Jesus Christ, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to save sinners and to expand the kingdom of God on earth. And there are three actions that we find in this chapter that are tied to that flame. First, in verses 1 through 4, an enemy fans the flame. Then in verses 5 to 24, a magician quenches the flame in his own heart. And in verses 25 to 40, a eunuch catches the flame. First, in verses 1 through 4, an enemy fans the flame. Now, last time in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, Luke told us that the Jews who were gathered at the stoning of Stephen laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul of Tarsus. Now at the beginning of chapter 8, we find that that, that young man uh, had been no mere bystander at, at the uh, execution of Stephen, Saul of Tarsus was one of the most militant and vicious enemies of the church among all of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. And the public execution of Stephen, I believe, had fueled Saul's 
uh, confidence and fueled his murderous intent against the church. I mean, think about it for a minute. They had gotten away with publicly executing a, a Jew, a fellow Jew. Uh, when they wanted Jesus executed, they had to go through the Romans. They had to use the authority of the Roman, of the Roman government to accomplish that execution. But now they just they just stoned a man to death in public. Um, I believe that emboldened the opposition here. Chapter eight, verse one says, "And Saul approved of his of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem." And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You know how, notice how Luke makes that, he gives that exception very explicitly. Two verses later, Luke tells us that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women uh, and committed them to prison. We find out later in, in, uh, in, Paul's testimony about this part of his life later in, in the book of Acts, that he wanted these people dead. That word ravaging is as forceful as words get. Freeburg's lexicon says that the Greek word used here speaks of, quote, irrational and relentless persecution. Irrational and relentless. The word itself means to devastate, to destroy, to do great harm. Saul was the hatchet man for the Sanhedrin, and he liked his work. In Galatians chapter 1, Saul, who by that point was known as Paul, describes his life at the time of the events that we find here in Acts chapter 8. Galatians 1.13, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Saul's hatred of Jesus and of everyone who was connected with Jesus was, in his own words, beyond measure, extreme. It was over the top. Saul became the ringleader for this great persecution that, according to verse 1 of Acts 8, resulted in the scattering of countless believers who then went outside of Jerusalem to cities throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Now, some commentators and, and preachers seem to think that by staying in Jerusalem at this point, the apostles failed to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we find no rebuke. We find no rebuke against the apostles in Luke's words here. And after all, and think about it, the apostles stayed in the fire of, of heavy persecution, mortal threat to their lives by, being, by continuing on in Jerusalem while most of the others left. But what we must not miss here is that the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit used the fierce persecution of the church in Jerusalem that was spearheaded by Saul to expand the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ to stages two and three of the, the progression that, was, that had been commanded by Jesus himself. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said 
But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea, which is the region in which Jerusalem is positioned, and in Samaria, and then also to the ends of the earth. That was 1.8, Acts 1.8. Now in 8.1, we find that the many believers who fled the persecution that was going on in the city of Jerusalem were scattered throughout those regions, all of Judea and Samaria, the region north of Judea. But the believers who departed from Jerusalem did not leave the city so they could go hide out and be silent. Verse 4 says they went about proclaiming the word. Actually, it's more specific than that. They went about evangelizing. They went about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in all these places, just as Jesus had commanded. In verse 5, Luke draws her attention to the Spirit's work through Philip. Now, Philip is the second of the seven original deacons that were appointed in the Jerusalem church in chapter 6. He's the second of those deacons to get special attention in the book of Acts. The first one, of course, was Stephen, who finished his race in the previous chapter when he was stoned to death for proclaiming the gospel. There is no doubt that Stephen and Philip did a faithful job with their original assignment of, of overseeing the distribution of food to needy people within the believing community in Jerusalem. But the work for which they have become memorialized, remembered to every generation of Christ's church is the work of faithful and fearless evangelism. The evangelistic ministry of Philip is the backdrop for everything that Luke then goes on to tell us about the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of this chapter. Now we learn that Philip, the first saint, was the first saint to bring the gospel to the third stage of that gospel expansion that was commanded by Jesus. He was the first to, to begin preaching the gospel in Samaria. Um, says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. It doesn't specify which city. There wasn't actually a city called Samaria, but a city of Samaria began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord, and I'm reading NASB here because I think it's, it's very faithful to the, the original. It says, they were giving, the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard the gospel of Jesus, as they heard, heard the word of Philip. So they were paying it, they were giving attention to what was said by Philip. Those words will be very important. And then they saw the signs which he was performing. That which the people in Samaria believed, that to which they gave attention and believed, was the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. That's what it says in chapter 8, verse 12. Okay? The good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit provided signs and wonders through Philip to attest to the message that he was proclaiming and to Philip's authority to proclaim that message on Christ's behalf. But it was the message that drew the attention of the Samaritan people most earnestly, not the messenger. And that's very important. 
I can't help recalling at this point that in John chapter 4, after Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, uh, after that woman's testimony had made its way into the city of Sukkar, the Samaritan city of Sukkar, uh, and, and she was telling everybody that this man, Jesus, had told her things that only God could know about her own heart and her own life. And he had told her things about the, this plan of redemption, this gift of redemption in Christ alone. And so then a multitude from that city came to Jesus. City came, uh, Jesus came into the city and a multitude gathered around him. And it's really cool that in John 4.41... It says that they believed because of his word. They believed in Jesus because of his word, not because of his miracles. You know what? Jesus did know miracles when he came into that city. He just spoke the truth, and they believed because of his word. Beloved, we must never forget that it is the message that we bear that is inhabited and empowered by the Holy Spirit to draw people out of the darkness eternally into the light of, of God, of Christ. Romans 1.16 says that that message, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and even to the, the Greek or the, the non-Jew. At the same time that Luke tells us here about Philip's gospel ministry among the Samaritans, he, he introduces another man named Simon. He tells us that Simon, quote, formerly, formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. <laughs> he was a good salesman. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were, listen to the words, they were giving attention to him. They were giving attention to him. And they were saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And then again, it says, verse 11, they were giving him attention. Twice it says that. Because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Notice that nothing is said about the content of anything that he says. Any of you guys ever play the, play the game Simon Says? Well, in this passage, Simon says nothing. <laughs> the only thing that he says is, I'm great. He does a lot of things that attract attention, but he doesn't have any content, okay? Twice, Luke says the Samaritans were giving attention to the man, Simon, and that's, and, and by the way, the words give attention are the exact same words that Luke used in verse 6 to describe the response of many in Samaria to the gospel proclamation of Philip. They gave attention to his message. Um, even as he's performing signs and wonders. Now, again, it appears to me that Luke goes out of, out of his way to draw a distinction between those two, those two uh, points of focus uh, of the Samaritans. Simon was exalting himself. He was uh, claiming, to be, claiming to be great. You will never read of one of the apostles of Jesus saying, I'm great. They're always saying he's great. Uh, and by the way, if you run across a preacher who declares himself to be a representative of Christ, who's telling you how great he is or she is, yeah, run, run. Many were buying the man's claim. They called him the great power of God, him. All right, now, 
the signs that Philip did, Simon did magic tricks, Philip did signs and wonders by the Holy Spirit to draw the people's attention to the message, not to the messenger. Um, it's clear, again, it's clear that the signs the Holy Spirit was doing through Philip were far more compelling than the magic tricks being done by Simon. That held true even for Simon himself, right? Simon becomes more impressed with Philip than he is with, him, with his own tricks, at least. Verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now, Luke says here, Simon believed and was baptized and that he continued on with Philip. No. He's, he, as he continues on with Philip, he still seems very, very engrossed in the, in the signs that Philip is doing. But now I'm well aware that the that, uh, commentaries and preachers uh, have agonized and argued for a very long time about whether Simon, whether or not Simon the magician was saved or not saved. Personally, I had quite a wrestling match with that question this week. Um, I want to comment on that, but I do not want that to become a distraction from the bigger point of this passage. Uh, so uh, let me mention a couple of things and then move on. As I see it, there are two possibilities here. Either Simon said he believed but actually did not, or Simon believed and was saved. There is no third option. Okay? We are saved by grace through faith, not through faith and performance. And it is not the quality or quantity of our faith that saves us. It is the perfection of faith's object, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and of his completed work at the cross. That's what saves us. When a sinner comes to trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, as he is over and over presented in this book, who paid the eternal debt of that sinner's sin in full at the cross, and who was raised from the dead, that person's salvation is settled forever. If you disagree with that statement, that's fine. Come talk to me afterward. I can, tell, can promise you, you will not change that statement in my heart. In verse 13, Luke does not say Simon professed to believe. He says Simon believed. And after that, after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And guys, he says that immediately after, after saying of other people, other Samaritans in the same context, that when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. I see nothing in that statement that raises questions about the legitimacy of their profession. Everything that's said about Simon's behavior after Luke records that he believed and was baptized is miserable. It's pathetic. So is everything that Peter says to Simon. It's scary stuff. There is no question that Luke's inclusion of Simon's story here is intended to be a very strong negative example for us that is placed then in stark contrast to the positive example of the Ethiopian eunuch's simple and pure faith that we'll see very shortly. 
Again, some preachers and writers conclude from Simon's words and actions here and from Peter's very, very forceful rebuke towards Simon, verses 18 to 24, that this man was clearly unsaved. I'm sorry, but I can't go there. Well, I'm not sorry. I'm just, I just can't go there. Uh, some of the harshest rebukes in the New Testament are directed toward redeemed saints. I do have to say at this point, I do not find sufficient cause in the rest of this passage to take Luke's declaration that Simon believed to mean anything other than what those words mean in many other passages, including this one, when they are applied to other people. I would have to have very compelling evidence to make those words mean something different. Okay, enough said. It's fine if you disagree with me. In verse uh, about Simon, okay. In, in verses 14 to 17, Luke says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, the apostles, began laying their hands on them, and they, the Samaritans, were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be very clear about this. The normal timing for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a new believer is at the point of belief, not at some later time. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 I learned this passage when I was a baby Christian, and it blows me away. In him, you also, it's, I mean, you Gentiles, not just us Jews, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, a down payment of your inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, that's you, to the glory of his, to the praise of his glory. That says, when you heard and believed, God sealed you with his Holy Spirit. That is the normal course of events. All of those who hear and believe the good news of their salvation in Christ receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit as the down payment, the guarantee of their eternal inheritance, their destiny to dwell with God and his people forever in the place that he has prepared for us. The receipt of that gift from God of the Holy Spirit seals the believer in Christ, and that seal is irrevocable. So why is it that in this passage, God delayed the gift of the indwelling, the impartation of the Holy Spirit for these new Samaritan believers until the apostles came and laid hands on them? Well, I and many others uh, believe that the reason for that delay was to make an undeniable point to the believing Jews who until this point made up almost all of the church. That point is that the gospel is not only for Jews. In fact, it's not even only for Jews and converts to Judaism. It's also for Samaritans. We're going to find out very shortly it's also for Gentiles who have nothing to do with the faith of, of the Jews. Now, I want to also point out, uh, well, th this was a hurdle. Uh, this was a, a big hurdle for Jewish Christians. 
just as the Gentile the inclusion of Gentiles will be. There were a number of things about Samaritans that made them very distasteful to Jews. <laughs> this, on the plus side, the Samaritans worshipped Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they shared with the Jews a love for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Okay? And the Samaritans were looking for the coming of a Messiah, as the Jews were. But but to the Samaritans, that the promise of that coming was just Deuteronomy 18, God's promise to Moses, uh, through Moses to Israel, that there would be a prophet that he would raise up like Moses, and that, that all of Israel must listen to that prophet. Okay. Um, but that's where the common ground ended. The Samaritans had little regard for all of the rest of what we know as the Old Testament scriptures after the books of Moses. And they worshipped Yahweh at a rival site uh, known as Mount Gerizim uh, in, in the region of Samaria rather than in Jerusalem. So the Jews uh, saw Samaritans as corruptors of the true faith of Israel. Now, finally, the Jews saw the Samaritans as an impure half-breed race. The way the Samaritans came into existence was that when Assyria took the northern tribes of Israel away into captivity, they forcibly planted Gentiles from other places into northern Palestine, and they left just a smattering of Jews, just, a, just the, what they considered to be the riffraff of the Jews. They left them there in, in the northern part of Palestine. Those Jews intermarried with those Gentiles, and that's where the Samaritans came from. And so to a, to a Jew, and that's, that's not a pure race, for these and other reasons, it was front-page news to the Jewish believers to discover that God was saving Samaritans. And I believe that that is why the Spirit waited until the arrival of John and Peter so that the authority, the apostolic authority would be manifest, that they would come and they would pray and they would lay hands on these new believers in Samaria and then the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And I don't know if he visibly manifested himself through tongues or like he had, like he had done earlier or and, and uh, will do later as well. But whatever, I think there was a manifestation. I think that the people, they, they witnessed the laying on of hands in the prayer and they saw something, some visible demonstration of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Now it's worth pointing out uh, here before we move on that in the very next passage when the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith, there's no laying on of hands by the apostles. Okay? The man believes, he's baptized, signifying his receipt of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So even in the immediate context, we are given no reason to treat the delay that we find in the first part of the chapter as the normal course of events when someone comes to faith. Does that make sense? Okay. In verse 18 of Acts 8, Luke brings, brings Simon back into the story, only now it is the apostles who are dealing with this man and not Philip alone. Everything else that we see in the, the passage about Simon demonstrates that his motivation was far more mercenary than it was godly. When he saw that the Holy Spirit was imparted by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered money to the apostles and he said, let me buy that power, right? Give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. Think about what money I can make doing that. 
And I want to point out that magic arts at this time was a pretty profitable uh, it was a pretty, pretty profitable endeavor. Uh, in Acts 19, later in this book, in Acts 19:19, 19, 19, there's a group of magicians in the city of Ephesus who come to faith. And so they take all their books, all their magic books, and they throw them on a fire and burn them up. And then they tally up the value of those books, and it ends up being about two million U.S. dollars by, by current valuation. They had to make a lot of money doing magic to pay for those books, to justify the cost of those books. All right. Now that Simon witnessed the real thing, not the tricks, his mind was going crazy with the opportunity to make some more money. And Peter called him out, of course, very forcefully. Peter says to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, with money. You have no part or portion in this matter. And I, I need to acknowledge that those words, no part or portion in, he, in Hebrew understanding, those are very forceful words. For your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Again, I'll point out the only way that a believer would ever be in the bondage of iniquity is voluntarily. Okay? We are not, that sin has no power whatsoever over a believer, but some believers do. They, they, they step back into that realm. They, re, they, in effect, enslave themselves to sin. But there's no power there. Uh, there's no, there's no, uh, no power that controls them and forces them to do that. Now, Simon's only response here was to ask Peter to pray to God for him so that nothing of what Peter said would fall upon Simon. Guys, repentance is not something that is done vicariously through someone else. But I have to say also that Simon's words here bring to my mind uh, Israel's plea to Moses in Exodus 20. My wife was talking to me about this last night. Um, in Exodus 20, after seeing the, the mountain quake, you know, the, feeling the mountain quake and hearing the trumpet blast and receiving the law and hearing, hearing God speaking, the, the Jews asked Moses not to let Yahweh speak to them directly lest they die. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, God actually commended the Israelites for the rightful fear of him that they had demonstrated through that plea. Whatever you conclude about Simon's spiritual condition, there is no question that Luke's narrative of these events surrounding Philip's and the apostles' interactions with Simon serves as a strongly negative example of how the gospel of Jesus Christ should impact a person. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. That exhortation is directed toward believers. Mere men will never extinguish the flame of the Holy Spirit as he spreads the gospel of Jesus to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But a believer can quench the work of the Spirit in his or her own heart. And Simon the magician seemed bent on doing just that. In verses 
1 through 4, Saul fanned the flame. In verses 5 through 24, Simon quenched the flame. Now, in verses 25 to 40, a eunuch catches the flame. The second response to the gospel that was preached through Philip that we find in this chapter stands in stark contrast to the first. And that contrast is wonderfully instructive to us. The apostles and Philip, after the, the incident with Simon, they headed back to Jerusalem. Okay? They were in Samaria. They headed back to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was not Philip's endpoint. Okay? An angel of the Lord, verse 26, spoke to Philip saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza's way down here in the far southwest extremity of the land of Palestine. I just want to point out real quickly that if you, if you read Luke, Luke's gospel in the book of Acts, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that all roads that led out of Jerusalem were very unsafe places to be if you wanted to remain an unbeliever. Um, this, in this case, Gaza is a, an ancient Philistine city and somewhere along the road from, and, and, and of course the eunuch's just passing through it on his way to Africa, to Ethiopia. But somewhere along that road from Jerusalem to Gaza, Philip catches up with the entourage of an important man from Ethiopia. And the man was apparently a proselyte, a, a Gentile convert to Judaism who had just been to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. He had been at the temple. And now he's traveling back home to Ethiopia Luke tells us he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And Luke points out that he was a eunuch. Now, the next time you think your boss requires too much of you, consider this. Back in biblical times, kings and queens seemed to think that one of the ways that they could secure the undistracted loyalty and devotion and devoted service of their male servants, especially of those who were entrusted with the most important tasks, was by removing the distraction of their sexuality. In other words, by castrating them. If you ever find that on a job description, don't take the job. <laughs> Luke tells us that this particular eunuch was in charge of all the treasure of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. The Holy Spirit instructed Philip to go up and join the eunuch's chariot. He had to run pretty fast to do that because we find out in verse 58 the chariot and the whole convoy was still moving. When Philip reached the man's chariot, he found the court official reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Not just from some unknown passage in Isaiah, but from one very specific passage. Luke, make sure that we know that. And that passage is the magnificent suffering servant passage from Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12. It's one of the most formative passages in my understanding of the gospel when I was a young believer. That passage was written nearly 700 years before Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled it in every detail. It speaks of the one that God calls my servant. It says he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But then it says he will be humiliated. He will be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then it presents, friends, then it presents the single clearest declaration 
of the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus that you will find anywhere in the Bible, and it's in the Old Testament. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I know I've said this before, but it's, it's, that is just an amazing passage over and over and over. Him for us, him for us, him for us. Substitutionary atonement. After telling of Christ's uh, suffering and death in that passage, the passage goes on to, to say that he's buried in, the, uh, in a rich man's tomb, in effect, and then that his days are prolonged. So he dies, he's buried, and his days are prolonged because he made himself a guilt offering for sinners. And then at the end, it comes back around to his exaltation because of what he did. Now, I've shared this personal story with you before, so I'll be quick with it this time, just not give the details. When I was in college at A&M, and I was a very young Christian, I met an elderly, elderly man, a Gideon, his name was Aaron Shapery, and he was handing out Bibles in a big public square on the campus at A&M. Uh, I got in a conversation with him, he told me he had been raised as an Orthodox Jew, and he told me that when he was about the age that I was then, when I had that conversation with him, another Jewish friend of his came up to him and handed him the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, open to Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12, which, by the way, is very deliberately excluded from the weekly readings in synagogues all over the world. When they get to, when they get to Isaiah 52.12, they jump then in the next day's reading to Isaiah 54, okay? So my friend Aaron, this man that I met, he was not familiar with this passage. And when that young man told him to read it, then the man, the, his friend said to him, who does it look like that's talking about? And Aaron said, the Messiah, Jesus, my Savior. And that was the day that, that Aaron got saved. Here in Acts 8, on a desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza, Philip started from that passage in Isaiah. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus. And I, we're out of time, but I've got to say this real quick. How many times have we already seen in the book of Acts that the preaching of the gospel of Jesus includes the declaration that God has been talking about him ever since he started talking to human beings. Okay? Over and over and over. That's part of our gospel, guys. The man was immediately, this, this eunuch was immediately brought out of the darkness into the light of everlasting life in Jesus Christ. When the eunuch believed that message, he said to Philip, okay, here's water. <laughs> What's to keep me from being baptized? We got to see that same thing in effect happen six, I didn't get to see it, I wish I could have, six times at youth camp this summer. The eunuch commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. I'll just parenthetically say it kind of sounds like immersion to me, but anyway. 
When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, uh, you and I need to know this very clearly. The gospel that we bear to the world, the message of both testaments of God's word is the message of our infinite and condemning sin debt owed to God, paid in full by his one and only son, Jesus, the long-promised Christ, whom all the prophets talked about paid in full when he died on the cross in the place of sinners and was declared the Son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. Luke's account of the salvation of this eunuch is the wonderfully positive example in this chapter of how the gospel of Christ should affect the one who responds to it in faith. There's no complication in this second half of the chapter. There's no element of worldly or material distraction, even though this man controlled the wealth of a nation. There is only the simplicity and purity of childlike faith in Jesus as the long-promised Messiah and Savior of sinners. The messenger and the message in these two responses that we find in this chapter to the gospel, the messenger and the message are the same. As ambassadors of Jesus and as bearers of the good news of forgiveness and of eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have no control over how that message is received. None. And that's fine. But the message we bear is the same message that was preached by Isaiah and Peter and Stephen and Philip and that we will soon see preached by Saul the arch enemy of the gospel of Christ who is just about to meet the resurrected Christ and be transformed forever. The message we bear is thousands of years old. It's really much older than that because God decreed it before the foundations of the earth. And God has put men like that Ethiopian eunuch all over this world and he has made their hearts ripe, ready to hear and to believe, and to be brought to life. There are people like that all around us, all around us. Let's pray. Dear Father, make us faithful to preach the word of the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus, the long-promised Christ, the one and only Savior of sinners like us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would grant to us the same boldness and clarity <laughs> that these saints requested and that, that he, the, the Spirit, so abundantly gave to them. Use us, Father, as your ambassadors in this present age. Fill your kingdom with men and women and children who hear that glorious message through redeemed children of God just like us. We ask it in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.